Welcome to the 64th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg and my co-host from the Inland Ocean Coalition, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Well, hello, everyone. Today, we're talking about the art of nature, including nudibracts, with my friend Isabella, or rather Izzy Kirkland, who combines detailed portraits of nature's diversity into visually stunning expressions of life and its fragility. Not surprisingly, along with being a renowned painter, she's also a research associate at the California Academy of Sciences. Her art has been shown from Chicago's Field Museum to New York's Museum of Modern Art and beyond. The late scientist Ian Wilson, who used one of her works for the cover of his book, The Future of Life, wrote that her portraits of species are, quote, classic in the original and best sense of the word. So speaking of origins, Izzy, where'd you grow up and when did you first connect with nature and the shore? Uh, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia and had a, a great naturalist dad. Uh, my mom was born in, in, on a Anastasia Island with a lighthouse in Florida. So I spent a good bit of time uh, on the beach in North Florida and St. Augustine and uh, just was privileged to have a great aunt and uncle who had an antebellum plantation on the James River in Virginia uh, that was across a river from a game preserve, a thousand acre game preserve. So I had water, both salt and fresh that I loved from the very start. So tell us when you started uh, combining your, your love and interest with nature and your amazing paintings. Well, thank you. I, uh, I started out as a sculptor and for about 15 or 20 years built works about social, general social issues, overpopulation, pollution, you know, just sort of broad social ills and questions. And after doing a stint in the film industry as an art director, I was so overwhelmed by the amount of waste that goes into making a moment or two of this transitory entertainment in the film industry that I decided to reduce my own ecological footprint. And one way to do that was to paint because paintings just take a few tablespoons of materials. And so it, it's, it was an extreme challenge to try to marry what I love the most with what I was incapable of doing. So I actually trained myself to paint. And by looking at those Dutch still life masters, and, you know, you can still practically type a bug from their paintings. They look just as fresh. The grapes look like you could still pick them. So I had kind of an aha moment uh, that I could do the same thing using sort of modern biodiversity science and possibly make something that lasts for 500 years so that I could speak to people 500 years from now. Huh, now, the last century of certainly American art has been a non-representational, uh, not focused on the Dutch masters. And, and was it, I mean, were you already into uh, biodiversity or what, what shows you to go in that direction of, of hyper-realism that's really gorgeous, but different? Well, one of the things was that I, I thought if I'm gonna paint things that are gonna last 500 years, I might as well be accurate. <laughs> so, you know, I realized that if I wanted to save analog images of things that we're likely to lose, I should have them be as accurate as I could get them. 
um, I studied taxidermy for a while. So, you know, I, I got used to looking at bird eyelashes and nostril hairs and things like that. So <laughs> I've always had a real fetish for detail. So I finally found the perfect application for that. <laughs> I worked in two natural history museums um, in my life, but it never evolved to art. So I'm very impressed with how uh, your museum interactions led you to this career, which is really impressive. But I, I wanted to ask you, you, um, you have a lot of work that really depicts the kind of the human interaction with nature. And that can be challenging. And I just want to know how you you know, your work, it has different qualities depending on what um, you're painting. So how do you balance that out with nature, human interaction, potential species loss, habitat loss? It's a tough, it's a tough balance. It, it is. Uh, you know, I think there are plenty of other people making work about megafauna um the sort of charismatic big things i sort of focus on the little things that aren't as deemed as important although they go to make up the finest fabric of all ecosystems um i think like anyone who works on issues of how nature is managing to survive you know it's, it's depressing often it's just depressing news but I feel like at this at the time that I'm also telling these stories of invasiveness or of um, you know or of extinction, I'm I'm also trying to celebrate the wonderful stuff we do have left and that we are continuing to discover. So, you know, sometimes I think if I can just if I can just inspire one kid to become a scientist, I will feel like I've won. <laughs> well, it's it's funny. We interviewed our friend Wyland, who does, you know, whale murals that cover sides of office buildings and very megafaunish, um, <laughs> yeah. the charismatic characters. But when, when you started painting, were you thinking of painting biodiversity? I mean, did you come to that first or how did it evolve? Uh, I decided that that I if I were going to spend all this time to because these paintings do take a lot of time. If I was going to spend this much time, I would only focus on what is really dearest to my heart. So there are lots of other subjects I could take up, but honestly, this is what I care about the most is the survival of as many species as possible and that I might be able to use the work I do to subtly try to change people's minds a little bit, make them care a little bit more, pay a little bit more attention, maybe not use lawn products to kill so many bugs and birds. <laughs> All of those insecticides and herbicides, yes. pesticides. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I was really inspired with your story about um, your, your invasive species painting and how you were free in essence to go out there and just chop and cut <laughs> the plants and then have them right there. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, that it was really a joy because usually I'm putting together a, um, a tableau of things that A, wouldn't ever possibly be next to each other because of from different parts of the world. And B, I haven't ever seen it alive. You know, often I've only seen other artists' versions of it and possibly a study skin at a museum. 
or a relative at a zoo. I even do that, go to watch something that's closely related so I understand how it works. So it is really a great treat when I get to actually work from life instead of from dead things <laughs> or, or drawings or other people's photographs or my own photographs. So can I say as an addendum to what Vicky just asked, um, these were two incredible paintings, three foot by four foot. The, the first one was called Descendant, and it was your portrait of all these endangered species of the Americas that became the cover fo- cover image for uh, E.O. Wilson's book. And then when you, a year later, you did Ascent, which is kind of a, a slightly duller colored painting of feral cats and pigeons and brown tree snakes. And uh, as, as Vicky was asking, you sort of got to go out and pull all these invasives out of the ground. And, uh, and, and how'd you go about that? <laughs> it was really fun. Um, I was working on it in North Carolina. So I got to just go, you know, chop Arundodonax and tamarisk down. It was really, and, it was, and kudzu was really fun. You know, I, I just finished working on a project that's called Father Time. I've just finished the painting that's hopefully will be also be a book cover for Sarah Hurdy, who's a wonderful anthropologist from Davis. And it's it's of male animals that do a determining part of the baby care. So it's the good dad's painting. Oh, uh, that's neat. Yeah. No but, deadbeat uh, dads in this oil painting. No, not this one. <laughs> I remember I was talking with you, David, one day. We were standing on a float outside of my house in Sausalito. We live on an old ferry in Sausalito. And, and you said, Izzy, you have got to do work on the oceans and ocean critters. And I said, okay, okay, I promise. And then right that moment, this about four foot leopard shark swam around the float we were on twice and I said okay really really promise and I said, that wasn't enough it had a streamer of of eelgrass on its dorsal fin it was just really spooky <laughs> no I, I, I cued that shark inspiration. <laughs> you cued that shark <laughs> well you know that brings me into um something I really am dying to ask you about so you you did the the nudibranchs and the nudibranchs have such amazing natural history, like they're hermaphrodites, they've got crazy colors, they've got all kinds of things. So tell our listeners who don't know what a nudibranch is. Okay. A a nudibranch is a sea slug. So it's technically a mollusk. It has a little internal shell when it's young, but it's pretty much, it's like a garden slug. It's related to a garden slug, only they live in the oceans and they live at in every ocean and at every depth from the thermal vents to the shallowest water at the shore. And they're and called they're naked gills. Naked gills. Yeah. So, okay. So take it away because <laughs> their, their life history is fascinating. Their life history is amazing. I had to study them and look at them and draw them for almost a year before I even dared to try to come up with a painting of them because they're so diverse for one thing. And they're, because they're a slug, they're really rubbery. You know, they, they can stand up on their end. They can be upside down. They can curl up in a ball. They're really flexible. And I, I couldn't really figure out how I was going to approach them 
one of the reasons I chose nudibranchs as sort of my opening salvo on ocean creatures was that they hold still. So there's th thousands and thousands of photographs of them because divers like them. So it was an easy one to figure out how to get images for. And I mean, they, they are really remarkable creatures. They're these brilliant, brilliant colors, but they have the most primitive eyes almost in the world. They can barely see light and dark. So why are they all those crazy colors? <laughs> and so I really dug into that. I mean, often it's because they are the color of something they eat or they hide on something. There's one that's literally bubblegum pink that eats a bubblegum pink sponge and hides on it perfectly. But sometimes it's a posomatic coloration. So it's, uh, they're brilliant colors to advertise that they are toxic. So that means there's a whole bunch of them that copy the, that color pattern to hide behind the ones that are toxic. Uh, so it, it's still really a mystery why they are the colors they are. For our eyesight, of course, 20 feet underwater, you can't see their colors in the first place. So. <laughs> It's really quite a mystery why they've evolved in such extreme patterns and colors. It, it's but like the living jewels, except those that look like living pieces of bazooka bubble gum. <laughs> That's true. Well, tell us about their reproduction, because I think that is so fascinating. Well, they all lay eggs. What's interesting about the way they lay their eggs, though, is that some of them build kind of a little basket. That, that dries into this weird basket shape. A lot of them form sort of ribbons. So they'll lay on an egg, this sort of squiggly pattern. Some, some of them look like a little rope of pearls. Um, so they are, they're all different methods of egg laying. Some of them are attached just sort of singly. You know, there's a set of nudibranchs that are the largest ones. Actually, the largest one I found after I did the painting is almost 600 millimeters long at 60 centimeters. Uh, and it's a, a Tamja. The Tamja genus will eat all of the others. <laughs> so they're, they're super predatory. And 60 um, centimeters is how many inches? Uh, you know, I'd have to go get a ruler. I, I wasn't going to ask that question. I can't remember, <laughs> but you know. Like, it's big. Two, two and a half feet, something. Whoa. Like uh, it's from the Sea of Japan, this, this pink one. But anyway, um, they really are. They, and I painted down to four millimeters, but they go even smaller than that. I, I painted 206 trying to show as much diversity as I could. 206 species from about four millimeters to 500 millimeters in scale. And of course I paint them at life size, which I often do so that they're in the correlative relationship to one another. Uh, and I painted them all from one side so that you could just sort of study how they are put together uh, because they, they have four, six or eight basic sort of body shapes. And, and if, if I showed them in all their different possible shapes it would be very hard to know what you were looking at so. wow well I'm, I'm still trying to get over godzilla bronc but uh <laughs> japan but uh it sounds like every painting becomes a major product that major project that's also a uh an in-depth study of another sector of botany or zoology for you 
It's true. I mean, I, I say all my paintings begin as a database and that's the truth. I mean, I start with a rubric, like all of these things have been discovered in the last five years, or all of these things belong to one family, or all of these are from one country. And then I just build a database from that, then start researching each individual one. I'll do scale drawings of everything so I know how big things are. And then once I have kind of a rough idea where the big things are, I try to come up with some at least slightly reasonable placement for them in this imaginary space I'm building. I really appreciate your looking at the smaller parts that are the essential threads in our tapestry of life. But before we go on about your art, I think a lot of our listeners would feel I'd, I'd failed if I didn't if I just let it pass as an aside, you you mentioned you live on a ferry boat. I I do indeed. Um, Tell us about that. <laughs> well, I had the dumb luck to marry in <laughs> to a family that started one of the first houseboat marinas in Sausalito. Uh, they were sailing up in the Delta in the late 50s and saw this old white ferry boat that was just beached up there. And inquired about it and purchased it for next to nothing. It was, it was going to be scuttled. So it got yet another life. Originally it was built in the, it's called the city of Seattle. And originally it was built up for the Puget Sound before those bridges were up. And then it did it, the car companies, the early car touring companies used it for a bit in the Bay. And then it did the Martinez Benicia run. And then it did, this last service was the was taking shipyard workers to Mare Island during the war. And in between each of those jobs, it was almost scuttled. So our ferry boats had many lives and now it's our house and our son was born there. And, um, and we get the, the great joy of getting to wake up every morning on the water, which is really mm -hmm. superb. And it has twin pilot houses. I remember for coming and going as a car ferry. And one of them was actually a studio for another artist. Yes, it was. Uh, we had both pilot houses occupied for a while. Uh, Phil Frank used to draw his cartoon Farley up there. And I painted in the, when I was first learning to paint, I worked in the other one. So I was make it was only eight feet by eight feet. So I was making little tiny paintings. <laughs> And in 2018, when we did our global march for the ocean, one of the marches took place in Suriname. So I was kind yeah. of surprised to discover that you were down there as an artist. Tell, tell us about your trip to Suriname. That was fantastic. I can't wait to go back. Um, the State Department, U.S. State Department, actually has a curatorial division. And when they build a new embassy in a country, they build an art collection about half U.S. artists and half local artists. So they were building a new embassy in Paramaviro, Suriname. And so I was called out of the blue to see whether I'd like to do a project there. And because Suriname was originally called Dutch Guiana, it's actually the land that was traded for New York. I was thrilled to go. And because I sort of have studied the Dutch still life paintings and biodiversity there is quite fantastic. It sort of was a good, very good fit. So I did a painting called Coexistence for that country. Uh, it's, it highlights all kinds of animals that they have that are unique to Suriname. 
or typical of Suriname. And then on top of that, every single plant, seed, piece of grass, living plant-like matter is used by the people of Suriname medicinally. So that was just a game I played with myself. <laughs> um, because it's in the, the embassy building, the people of Suriname probably won't ever get to see the painting. So I have designed a poster that I would like to go back and take to give to schools and libraries and anybody else who wants one, um, just so that they have some representation of, of their country that, because a lot of people don't get to go to national parks and see these amazing animals. So yeah, no, I think that's at least the poster would help. And their yeah. coast is all mangrove. It's an incredible mangrove forested area. It is. Uh, I went out pretty deep into the um, mangrove looking for a crab hawk, which is really big Twitter bird. Uh, not as in Twitter, electronic Twitter, but a bird, life lister bird. And I have never been in a place where I was standing thigh deep in plastic bottles, but that oh, was the case. Cool. It was really terrifying at the headwaters of the of the river at Paramaburo. But um, I did see a crab hawk, which was really amazing. I think that's a, a topic we're all grappling with around the world is yes. just excess single-use plastics that we use and then toss and many countries are getting other people's waste. So we won't delve into that because we're talking about- no, sorry. The fossil fuel industry loses- yeah, the oil companies lose their their market in fuels as we electrify. Um, they're talking up plastic as the next place they're going to put their product, and we're talking up getting beyond them. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, now I've been working in uh, Kenya some, and you know, they've banned plastic bags since I. The whole country has banned plastic bags. So when I first started going there, every piece of barbed wire had tatters of plastic in it. And it's it, in two years, it's actually, well, I haven't been since COVID, so it'll be now three years, but um, but I it had made a difference in the first year. So, you know, it can be done. So what are your projects you're working on now? Your art's ever in demand? Well, I just did a piece during COVID that was on squat lobsters. And I'll have to tell you what squat lobsters are because nobody knows. They are, they are little, technically little lobsters. They're, they look maybe more like miniature shrimp. Um, they go, they range from about three, uh, maybe a centimeter to 10 centimeters. And they are, what attracted me to them is A, they're colorful and amazingly diverse, but that they are one of the larger bycatch issues in um, species in trawling. They're not edible. So they just get dumped overboard. So I, you know, I wanted to kind of illustrate that we're just tossing out these amazing creatures without really thinking about what it, what the cost is. And actually, I think, again, I'll, I think the, uh, I'm talking to the 10th International Crustacean Convention. They might use this painting for their, for their conference this year, which would be fun. It's um, stunning. It's a stunning painting. It's circular and very, very colorful. Yeah, you really do capture uh, the biodiversity of these squat lobsters for sure. 
one of the next little projects I'm doing is some shells. They're just seashells from a friend's collection who somebody has been collecting his whole life. <clears throat> so I'm doing two paintings of boxes of seashells, but I want to contrast those with living mollusks because Ooh. we all know what seashells look like. We're all very familiar with them and no one knows what the animals look like. That's a good point. Yeah. So that'll be a little pair. That'll be four small paintings together. And I have to say, I'm particularly thrilled watching your art expand to the other 71% of the planet. That's <laughs> water. Indeed. Uh, you know, I really want, I've been wanting to work on shrimp uh, because we think, you know, you just say the word shrimp and it appears in your head pink and on a plate, but there's massive diversity. There's so many different types of shrimp and from, you know, minuscule to quite large, but they move so quickly. It's really hard to get great photographs of them. So I'm, I'm just kind of at the beginning of doing a lot of email, trying to find people who have the great photos so that I can do the research because I know I'm never going to be a good enough underwater photographer to get those photographs. <laughs> well, we will follow you um, as we have been with your artwork. And um, David and I are both just so impressed with your artwork. Um, you're a joy to talk to. And it was a real pleasure to have you on the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. And we wish you lots of luck with your shrimp. <laughs> no small subject. No small exactly. subject. No. <laughs> and thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support is provided by Studio Cape May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbark. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.